0: the book last podcast. Our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy, showcases a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses. Today I am interviewing Philip Gwyn jones who has extensive experience at the heart of literary publishing, having started his career at the late lamented Flamingo imprint at HarperCollins, Collins, then founding Portobello Books, and merging it with Granter Books, moving on to Scribe, and since April this year heading up the Picador imprint at Macmillan. This interview is being recorded via Zoom during the COVID-19 lockdown. Good morning Philip, thank you for doing this interview via the internet. As a consistently passionate advocate of fine literature and translation throughout your career, what, in your view, makes a good translation, and what makes it last?
1: Good morning, everyone. Lovely to be here, outside, talking translation. I, I would say there's no single answer to that in the sense that I don't think there's a single recipe for great translation. Uh, I think it's quite a, it's quite a variable thing. It's um, there are many different types of great translation. There's not one answer to that. Uh, and in fact, in a way, the best answer is, is to use the second part of your question, what makes it last? I mean, a great definition, a great translation, rather, by definition, is one that lasts. Although some would say some have lasted too long, and there is definitely uh, an argument that translations need to be revisited. Translations oh, yeah. for classics, for example, you know, you look at People like Constance Garnett, whose translations of the Russians uh, in the sort of Edwardian times and earlier have gone somewhat stale and don't really uh, do the job they once did of talking to the wider readership that can engage with Tolstoy or, or whoever um, uh, in modern times. So a great translation can can fade, but it takes, you know, a century to fade. So a great translation, first and foremost, I suppose, is a translation that lasts, and the two things are pretty much interchangeable. But I don't think there's one, as I say, one type of translation or one approach to translation that works. I've always been of the school, as an editor at least, when when auditioning translators for a job, I would prefer to see a sort of... Uh, I was prefer a freer approach to translation. I don't believe in a kind of absolute literalism, although, again, you know, some, some people are much more... Uh, Keen that translation is about fidelity. I I'm of the school that says it should be about fidelity to the spirit, and that some of the best translations actually, you know, go furthest from the original, but somehow keep the spirit intact or keep a version of the spirit intact. But that probably applies to the most, the most literary, if we can use that uh, adjective, of, of uh, texts where where the demands perhaps are greatest on the translator and where the solutions they come up with often can be, as I say, uh, quite inventive and not necessarily as obvious uh, as in other areas of translation.
0: Yes, language is a movable feast, I guess. We don't speak as we did 100 years ago. It reflects the usage of the time. The translation of Don Quixote, for example, 50 years ago, would be very different to now. It was recently redone, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I think Penguin redid it not so long ago. And of course, all, all, all of Tolstoy and all of Dostoevsky and all, all of mm. Garnet's work is in the process of being replaced in the last, mm. well, obviously past generation, definitely the last 20, 30 years. So um, somehow publishing and translating the two ecosystems always managed to pull their finger out you know, at the, the right moment and, mm. and rescue her a neglected text or or a text just lost its, lost its accessibility for current version of the English language. We're talking about English language translation, of course, here. Uh, I'm sure these things are true if you're working in German, bringing things into German or working in Spanish, bringing things into Spanish and so on.
0: Why does literary translation have an important role to play in our changing world and how does it help us increase our empathic capacities?
1: well, the answer to that you could you could get extremely philosophical about, you could get extremely socio-political about, and you, you could make the argument, and this probably is very germane to um, to Tommy Vieringer's book, which uh, which is the one that describes uh, that we're we're focusing on, where his book uh, in Dutch and in English, and it's in English translation, you know, is is about in an oblique way about migration and about culture clash. And about um, a sort of a closed-mindedness, which can not see what's in front of it, even though what's in front of it is very large and and has is very present and has been there for a long time. It can't see it, or it chooses not to see it. So it's almost about translating cultural change as much as translating um, between cultures. In that, you know, that novel features migrants arriving from Russia, from Southeast Asia, from Eastern Europe in a small Fenland Dutch backwater of a town, uh, a very small town, and some of the inhabitants, some of the white Dutch inhabitants have been there for uh, all their lives, uh, and indeed generations cannot quite cope with the change represented by these to them, strange individuals who sort of turned up and have changed, changing the society of their their immediate townscape, um, and that's partly so, a social critique uh, and partly a um, a plea for a, a a greater openness to other ways of approaching being in the world, which is really what translation is always all about, uh, in order to better understand your own culture and your own culture's history and your own culture's closed-mindedness, if it has it, and uh, mm. where, where the fault lines might lie in that culture. So translation is always as much about the culture into which the, book, the work is being translated, if you see know what I mean? I mean, if we focus on understanding Japanese culture, let's say, through uh, Japanese literature in English translation, but actually it's as much about understanding English culture, by pointing out what's different and what we take for granted in, in little and large things, in, in you know small things like how we eat meals or dining etiquette, uh, to large things like attitudes towards the elderly or attitudes towards spirituality or whatever it might be, you know?
0: So it's very layered, Tommy Warringah's novel. There are many levels. The Shu family from China take over the bar and local attitudes towards them vary greatly. There's the new housing estate with all the Afghans and there's also the whole Russian-Polish strand as the place is on the border. A Russian leaving his homeland crashes in a crop duster and he goes off with a wife. So you have a whole angle looking at European and Russian racial enmity.
1: Yes, and and that's also partly about the impulses for for migration. So uh, the the impulses behind each of those uh, is different. Some are political migrants. Some are migrants fleeing civil war or social breakdown. Some are economic migrants of the the classic kind, just looking to go to a place where they think there will be more jobs and those jobs will be better paid and they will therefore have access to greater opportunities to greater disposable Mm. income with all that entails. So you, you see the different impulses behind migration. But of course, each of those migrants has arrived in a particular place with its own Particular history, its own particular social, industrial, uh, economic issues. And they, in turn, have to adjust themselves and their worldview to what they find. And together, they make a new version of the community. I mean, communities are always in flux. I mean, one of the idiocies of Mm. nativism, that reactionary trend that is so dominant, alas, in so many polities at the moment, is that it's it's so ridiculously well, it just fails to understand the nature of of, of social and political change, which is constant no. in cultural change. Every community is always in flux, always being remade. Each generation brings new attitudes to the to the fore, native or otherwise, and then as cultures in represented by individuals from those cultures bring their histories to bear on a community, the community shifts slightly and, you know, is enhanced and is and is its shape is changed. Who wants to stop the clock uh, is fighting against time and is fighting against forces it cannot ever defeat, which is why it's always a lost cause, which is why progressives will always win, even though it might be painful getting there.
0: You were the first British editor to offer a book contract to Jenny Erpenbeck, Ove Knausgaard, Jumha Lahiri, Arundhati Roy, Catherine Schultz and Zadie Smith, among others. Tell us about some of your recent discoveries published by Scribe and what makes each one so special.
1: Well, I am actually between jobs and I'm about to go off and be the, the head of Picador, which is very exciting, albeit in rather strange COVID-19 lockdown situation. Uh, that I start that job in June, and one of the things about changing jobs, which I haven't done that much in my career, uh, is that you are obliged to leave behind, of course, um, books that you've been nurturing, and especially with translations, which usually take longer to uh, arrive from the point of commission, they take Mm -hmm. longer to get to bookshelves, because of course, the translation process itself is usually time-consuming and involved. So, Two of the books coming out, you know, later this year or possibly early next year, all publication schedules now are in are in flux with with publishers mm. wondering when's best to release books. But two that I'm leaving behind that I'll be sorry to leave behind because they're both magnificent are both translations of nonfiction, and it's one of the things. There needs to be more of. There is more of them, and it's already better than it was in Britain. Yeah. That the appetite for literary nonfiction in translation, narrative nonfiction in translation, is greater, oh. and there's more coming through from Northern European languages. And we need to extend it to Asian languages and Southern European languages and and, and beyond. The two books I'm thinking of are a Polish book by a woman called Malbajarta Sieniet, translated by Sean. Gasper by bye that is and it's it's simply called ellis island a people's history so it's effectively an oral history of of ellis island which of course was the the center the funnel for migration uh, into the united states from the rest of the world principally from europe but then with with time passing from the whole world from the late 19th century the 1890s when it was formally established this island in New York Harbor, devoted to the immigration experience, shall we say. It was formally established in the 1890s, and it ran in its initial form through to 1924 or thereabouts, when immigration policy changed markedly in the U.S., and from then until well into the 20th century, into the 50s, it, it spent more time, which I think people don't really know, as, as a detention camp than as an immigration camp. So, it was a place where, for example, during the Second World War, Japanese-Americans and, and German-Americans were interned against their will. The, the book is, for one thing, it's a piece of literature It is beautifully delivered. Uh, Shenyet is, is often compared to Svetlana Alexi- Alexievich, the, the great Ukrainian writer, secondhand time, etc., And she, they're they're good friends, actually, they're more or less the same age. They've known each other for a long time. They're both dissidents under communism, Malgorzata, She founded a newspaper inside the shipyards in Gdansk in the early days of the Solidarność Solidarity Movement, and then went on to be one of the founders after the period of martial law of um, Gazeta Wyborcza, which is the great Polish newspaper, the kind of Polish equivalent of The Guardian, shall we say, and still going. And for many years, she was the Gazeta Wyborcza's editor for reportage. And the Poles, famously, you know, they have this strong tradition of reportage, investigative journalism of a sort, often with a strong kind of travelogue component. The, the school, if you like, with Kapuchinski's is the most famous. Exactly, yeah. But there are, But there are many others since then. And, and Malgozata essentially trained them all. I mean, she published them, cultivated them, edited them. In, in long form in the, in the feuilleton of the uh, of the paper of the gazetta without actually publishing herself until she retired. so she's now in her I think in her mid 80s still extremely sprightly and, and very very sharp but uh, only once she retired 15 years ago or so maybe a bit more did she start writing books and this book is the first of her books to be translated into English. She's written others, but I thought this was exceptional because it uses, amongst other things, it uses material that's never been used before because she managed to get access to the Russian state archive. So in Tsarist times and in early Soviet times alike, when lots of Russians, of course, many of them Jews, had been going to America, um, often one family member would go and then be writing home to the wife or the parents or the children they'd left behind to tell them about what was happening. The Tsarist police and then the communist police never let those letters actually arrive either way, so they impounded them all in their incredibly paranoid way. So there's this huge mound of correspondence, a lot of it very moving, between those on one side of the Atlantic and those on the other, dating back to the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. 1930s, Amal Guzata went and spent a long time and could of course read Polish and Russian and so was able to spend a lot of time sort of working away through that. So she's composed from that archive and then equivalent Italian archives and equivalent uh, Irish and English language archives in in New York, but also in Europe. This extraordinary kind of composite picture of uh, what the experience of migration was like as much for those left behind. As those who went, also as much for those who uh, supervised the migrants at the at the uh, Ellis Island Immigration Centre. You know, obviously they, it was staffed by guards and invigilators and uh, questioners, and, and it would always have a commissioner, the commissioner running it, and the commissioner was a crucial figure because he would set the tone for immigration policy and what you see. Over the course of the decades of its existence, is how migration, attitudes towards migration, you know, change a lot, often within quite short spaces of time. And that it was not forever this kind of golden, unquestioning institution that just let everybody in and everything was sunny. It was, it was actually, could be, it could be extremely hostile. It could turn orphans away for no good reason. It often relied on some pretty atrocious thinking, some of it eugenicist some of it sort of uh, more political racist, there were sort of hierarchies of, of tribe involved in their, in their eyes, you know, the sort of, the more Protestant you were, the more white you were, the more acceptable mm-hmm. you were, of all of that. So seeing all of that in action, mm-hmm. instituted as policy, you know, it's quite sobering, especially given America's current uh, calling, behavior towards mm-hmm. migrants. But... It's not a dry book, it's a beautifully, so incredibly economical, so it's quite fragmentary. She, she dances between individuals, and it's mostly told as biographical sketches. She doesn't linger on any one person very long, you know, often just a paragraph or a couple of paragraphs, and then they might re-emerge late, effect. To <laughs> so talk about the translator here, yeah. in his role, so he's part of one of these translation collectives popped up. His one is, is called Sidilla. And there's a few of them now around the world, sort of loose confederations of translators, often working out of different languages, geographically very separate. And they approached me years ago now, but uh, put me in touch with Sean. He did this kind of model, I have to say, in in terms of what you like to receive as a publisher. He prepared this dossier on why this book was important, Mm -hmm. why it did something that hadn't been done in, in, in English before about the history of Ellis Island why it was a work of literature, and then he also translated sort of review coverage from Polish and other languages. It's been translated in a few languages prior to English, made it clear how important Małgorzata was as a figure in Polish culture since since the 1970s, and made an incredibly strong case for uh, the, the necessity of the book to come into English. I, you know, I was convinced. He did a long sample himself, which showed very well what, what a beautiful piece of literature was. It's very sad to be leaving that behind, but I think uh, we wow. will make a, a good mark.
0: The second title?
1: The second one is, is, a, is a, a Dutch book by uh, a man called Peter Waterdrinker. Great name. Peter Waterdrinker has lived most of his adult life in Russia as a, a Russian correspondent for one or other of the main Dutch newspapers back in, back in Amsterdam. And he's enamored with Russian culture broadly. He's lived outside Holland for longer than I think he lived inside it. He married a Russian woman. He has children who are more Russian than Dutch, certainly. And he's, you know, fascinated by all the ways in which, to go back to what I was saying earlier, Russian culture, so close, really, to Western European, you know, Dutch culture, is so very different, and how that's expressed in its literature and its drama, uh, but also in its daily life, in its social attitude and its attitude to its politicians, its attitude to time, its attitude to family structures. So the book is called The Long Song of Tchaikovsky Street. And Tchaikovsky Street is the street on which he's lived in St. Petersburg for for many, many years. Petersburg, of course, was the birthplace of of each of the key revolutions in Russian political history. So it's a, a book about a century of revolutions, but revolutions not only political and social, but also revolutions cultural and, and literary his life is in it of course his experience of his direct experience of russian culture so it's it, one of those interesting books that is hybrid fiction and non-fiction in that it's clearly born of a lot of his real life it's mostly non-fiction i would say but it has a, a literary cast to it and you know, it's quite playful unreliable i would say at times you're not quite sure if something is made up or not so i'll be sorry to see that behind too.
0: Two very different big hits for Scribe are The Eighth Life for Brilke by Nino Harachvili, translated by Ruth Martin and Charlotte Collins, and Julia Ender's *Gut*. Is fine writing, whatever the subject, enough to sell a book these days, or is it all about marketing and reaching readers?
1: They're two very different books, I would argue, so their trajectory to success is very different. *Gut* was something that had worked in German, was an extremely successful bestseller in, in German, so it was one of those book fair propositions where its success was an index of what it might do in, in other languages. And it was bought across Europe and beyond all in one fell swoop by lots of different good publishers in the hope that the German success could be replicated. It was in a genre, in a part of the bookshop that's very has been very lively for the last 10 years or so, health, well-being. Mm. and especially the kind of dietary end of it which never of course goes away as a source of fascination for many many humans and yet it brought to the subject of diet and nutrition some of the new science emerging the role that the microbiome that we have in our gut plays in overall bodily health and mental health indeed which is a subject that science has only really started to explore in detail inside the last 10 years. One of the one of the things about it was Julia Enders was very young, and when she wrote it, she, she hadn't even finished her PhD, but her PhD was on this particular subject, the microbiome, the gut microbiome, and the, the, uh, the study of the genetic load and how variable it is between individuals and how that influences how they react to foodstuffs coming down the pipes, as it were. So that was a particular kind of publication, and I would argue that Scribe didn't, I don't want to take credit where it's not due, you know, somehow that book just caught fire pretty pretty immediately, not absolutely immediately, it took a few months to to really get going, but it, the word of mouth on it amongst the communities that our readers obsessed with, interested in books about diet, especially scientifically well informed books about diet, you know, the higher end, they really embraced it, and you could see that it was a, it was driven by word of mouth. That it wasn't we didn't spend a lot of money on marketing or even do much publicity. She was in Germany. She was it was not easy to get her over. There was a. We did have one visit at the beginning or near the beginning of publication, and she did a couple of features in in the media, but I wouldn't say that was decisive in the book's success in English. It really was about word of mouth within communities and the fact that clearly the book was respected for what it did, for the novelty of of some of its analyses and the, the new information it was purveying. And it's very, very palatable delivery. It's an extremely charmingly written accessible you don't have to be a phd microbiologist mm, or gastroenterologist mm. to to, yeah. to understand it it had a lovely tone which was you know well rendered in english it worked whereas the eighth life is a different proposition altogether not least in size so it's a hell of an undertaking for uh, any publisher. it's a in, in its native german as it were well not so native as she's georgian really but The book was written in German, but by a Georgian writer, Nino Haritishvili, and it's the story of the Red Century, the Soviet century, viewed from an unusual perspective, the the sunny southern shore of the Russian Empire, Georgia, but tracking the events of the 20th century in Russia from before the Revolution of 17 to the fall of communism in 8990 and the birth of an independent Georgia. It tells... I always say it's six doomed romances, one after the other, all playing out against the backdrop of real historical events and the kind of tumult of, of Russian-Soviet history in the 20th century. In German, it's 1,200 pages. It actually shrank somewhat in, in, when it came into English, down to just under a 1,000, but that's still a, a mighty undertaking. First and foremost, it's very expensive for a publisher to, to pay for such translation the translation cost in absolute terms is about £38,000, I'm not shy to say. We, we got some funding, and by no means no. I mean, barely half, I think, was covered by uh, a variety of funders, but you don't hope to to get the entirety of the translation funded. I don't believe in that. The, the issue with this particular book is that, in a way, it falls between two stools. So the Georgians, no. I mean, Nina is oh, Georgian I by birth and, oh. and nationality, but she didn't write it in Georgia. So they are in You know, I remember trying to deal with the Georgian Literature Centre, which has this advisory body, grandees of Georgian culture, who are very uncomfortable supporting something that is not written in the Georgian language. So we didn't get any money from them. The Georgian embassy in the UK has been very supportive, uh, enthusiastic, and has supported us in kind in certain ways. And that's been terrific. But there wasn't many money forthcoming from Georgia, not that I think there would be much anyway. Georgia not necessarily the richest state mm-hmm. with, the, with the deepest pockets, uh, even before the current crisis. Whereas we did get money from the Goethe Institute of Germany, but again, I think perhaps slightly less than we might have done had the book been German-German, dare we say. And mm-hmm. it, it was a reader's book in that, again, it didn't it didn't sell a lot to start with. And it didn't get shortlisted for the major prizes. It became almost scandalous that it hadn't been, although she did go on like two years after publication to win major prizes. But they were one-off prizes rather than prizes for the book. They were prizes for her as a writer. The, the, the German book prize, the Deutsche Prize, the, the equivalent of the Bucher in German culture, famously didn't shortlist the book. And that became yeah. actually, they turned that, the, the German publishers, Frankfurt of Elag, turned it into something of a selling mechanism. For the book. Back here in English, we knew we would have to invest an immense amount of effort and marketing money to have any hope at all of recouping our very considerable outlay. So it wasn't something we could allow just to come out and fend for itself. For something of that size you have to commit. I mean, luckily, everyone had the same sort of reaction to the book that, that I did when commissioning it, when, when they were able to kind of get to read it in English. And it is the kind of book, as many of the reviews have tested that some people don't like it at all and that's fair enough of course but if you do you absolutely adore it. It's a book you can live inside for one thing.
0: It's a cult book or rather The Eighth Life will become a cult book. If anyone from Netflix is listening to this podcast they should go for it as it's a stupendous saga and very well written and has a strong cast of characters who make an enduring impression.
1: We, we, we did have to take a good run-up at it and reading copies out and, and spend mm. a lot of time identifying good readers who might make a difference. For example, was right. It in America. Yesterday, on publication day, I mean, this is dreamland, albeit in a nightmare COVID landscape. On publication day, the New York Times gave it a would. rave review and the review was by a woman called Wendell Stevenson. Yes, I sent her yes. the proof of... Nino's book, The Eighth Life, back Mm -hmm. in September last year. Mm -hmm. So as a publisher, this is what you do. She absolutely loved the book. And then the review is perfect because she says at the beginning, you know, this wasn't necessarily the obvious kind of book for me. It looked a bit too much like a, a romp or a yarn or something a bit too straightforward. But within maybe 100 pages, she's entranced by it. And then it deepens. And then when you're in the siege of Leningrad, as it then was, in the war, and as she says in the review, nothing you expect to happen psychologically in terms of the relations between characters in the crucial moments, quite happens as you would expect, so it's, there, mm. there is nothing cliched about the book at all. Anyway, the review couldn't have been better. The translation has been crucial because the quality of the translation, Charlotte Collins and, and Ruth Martin, Charlotte um, Charlotte was the one taking the lead, as it were. Uh, she just decided that it made all sorts of sense—publishing sense, translation sense—to have two, two sets of eyes. So each would—the book is in parts—and each would um, tra- translate one part and then give it to the other to edit, and vice versa, alternately. So each of the books was translated and then edited by the other translator, and then it came into me uh, and, and Molly Slight who works with me, and. It was edited in the same way by by two pairs of eyes that scribe, you know. I would argue that the English, I think it's fair to say the English text is is watertight, um, and there were quite a few kind of historical glitches to iron out and a few sort of continuity errors to remaining from the German original. So I, I, I venture to, to claim that it's a slightly better version of the book in English uh, than the German original. I
0: would say that would not. Tommy Warringah, author of Blessed Rita, which you have just published, his writing is like a window opening onto another world, and though it's very local, it's also very universal. How does he pull it off?
1: How does he pull it off? Well, that is the, 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 you know, the big question, is <laughs> It's a million
0: it? question, yeah.
1: All yeah. great writers, that, that's what they do, and you, you yeah. just let them marvel. And it's true that all, all of his novels, and I think this is now the, the sixth book of his that I've published...
0: So you are his English language publisher.
1: Starting back at Portobello, the, the first book uh, that I did there was Joe Speedboat, which is an absolutely brilliant book. Uh, the same part of Holland, which is where Tommy grew up. He grew up in the sort of near the German border in, in the flatlands, farming country, uh, with some light industry, much of it now, now gone, and quite backward in all sorts of ways. And you can imagine that Tommy, who's... Father or Mother, I forget which, was from Suriname, so ethnically mm. he was a uh, mixture and maybe a bit unusual growing up in, in those precincts. And he's made his adult life in and around Amsterdam, largely. Mm. speed is a, is a sort of three-hander, it's kind of, it's the Jules mm. et of Dutch literature, I would mm. mm. say. It's a fantastic mm. story of a, of a kind of menage a trois that the narrator, the main protagonist, is disabled. He's in love with the main female character, but she in turn is rather more in love with the hyper-athletic, hyper-adventurous, hyper-bold, unpredictable Joe Speedboat um, the, of, the, of the title. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they make quite an interesting uh, triangle, and you follow them through their late teens Mostly, most of the book is The it's a Coming of Age. A coming, coming of, of Age, age. Okay. Tale. okay. It's funny. It's quite dark. It's, it's about adolescence in large measure. It's about ambition. It's about a sense of adventure. It's about playing by the rules or not. It's about education. It's about uh, community and versus individualism and all these grand themes. But it had a much more unlike The Blessed reader, which we'll come to, You know, it felt like kind of a useful work of John Irving's. It had a real kind of buoyancy and rambunctiousness about it, which some of the later books just don't have. I mean, one of the wonderful things about Tommy is that each book is very different from the previous, which makes Mm -hmm. him quite hard to publish, I have to say, because you never quite know what you're going to get. But I am convinced and always have been that he is, you know, he's world class and it's just Mm -hmm. eventually the English language... Reading world will catch
0: up with that. He's one of Europe's biggest selling authors. What is his magic ingredient? Is it that he is so original that he keeps you on your toes, is not samey, but a little bit different each time? And so he's exciting and he keeps you in suspense.
1: That's right. They're all, they're all very different. And the, the previous book, the previous book to this one, so the book before yes. The Blessed Read, long the for man book, yeah. that's okay. called The Death of Murat Idrisi. He is a Moroccan who unfortunately spends most of his most of the course of the novella, really. It is a short novel in the boot of a car, first alive and then dead, as it goes as he endeavors to be smuggled across the Straits of Gibraltar from Morocco into Spain and up to Holland. The car is being driven by two young women of Dutch women of Moroccan heritage, that who he find quite quickly when they go to their homeland for the first time, or their parents' homeland, rather, Morocco, that they feel completely like fish out of water. And then they are charmed, conned, by a very persuasive young man into (laughs) participating in this ridiculous scheme that that ends up with poor old Murat Idrissi suffocating, asphyxiating in the boot of their car as they drive across very hot desert conditions and and indeed the the ferry. So it's a bleak book, but it's much more, it's much more a sense of jeopardy because you wonder at every turn, will they be found out? What will they decide to do? How will they dispose of the corpse? Uh, will they turn themselves in? Do they have any scheme? Mm-hmm. Will the trafficker, as they now realise he was, they were conned by a trafficker, a people smuggler, will he do the honourable thing and rescue them? Of course he doesn't. You see most of, most of that small, short novel it's electric with suspense. Whereas the Blessed Rita could not really be in at first glance more downbeat. You know, nothing, no, no, no progress is made, shall we say, by yeah. the main characters. No progress is made in the main relationship between, two main relationships, between a, a son and his father, a, mid, a middle-aged man and his elderly father, and, and the middle-aged man and his best friend. They, they circle around the same habits, the same unspoken agreements between themselves, the same failures to uh, act on uh, ambition or act on the need for change.
0: You were also saying earlier that it's indicative of the stuckness. They are stuck, almost trapped in aspic like specimens in a lab jar. They are stuck in time and in mindset, while many changes are going on around them. I found Blessed Rita has a bewitching eerie quality, almost like an Edward Hopper painting in prose, set against the erosion of a centuries-old way of life on the land. The landscapes are bleak. The mill is taken away from them by the powers that be. There's an erosion of both the landscape and a way of life. Everyone wants to get out. The mother, the wife, the mother leaves with the Russian. The Chinese want to get out.
1: In literary terms, it's actually arguably more daring to try to pull off a novel in which no progress is made
0: than the previous one, which
1: is all (laughs) about peril and jeopardy and and two girls on a road trip. He's able to master both modes.
0: As voices from the margins have become louder influencing the political mainstream, how has fiction written from an outsider perspective evolved and increasingly become an identifiable genre in publishing since you began your career publishing translations? Do you see more books like this coming out now?
1: I think I think that's certainly true. It's certainly true in translated literature. I think it's certainly true that there, there is a, a large readership, a kind of avid readership that wants these stories from hidden cultures, unheard voices, underrepresented Mm -hmm. uh, communities. You know, they want to have a broader, wider lens through which they can view the world in which they live because they see things out there dimly and they want to know more and they feel it's not being recorded or analysed in mainstream culture. Mm. And I think it's true, particularly to come back to, to England, not Britain so much, but England, Writing about, you know, uh, we've lost, I would argue, although there's something of a movement to bring it back in the last year, particularly, we've lost, uh, you know, working class perspectives in, in mm. literature. We've, we've lost perspectives from the fringes. We've, we've, we've certainly had forceful, loud, interesting voices from, if you like, you know, bane communities increasingly in the last mm. few years, you know, underrepresented hitherto, but now very determined to be heard and to claim their rightful space in the territory and make their impact on on publishing and indeed on cinema and, and acting and, and, and the other art forms And all of that is really great and valuable. But I think what we've lost somewhat from sight is is class in this country and mm. uh, some attention to the lives of those, you know, that there haven't been many great Brexit novels. There certainly haven't been many great Brexit novels from the perspective of uh, of those left behind, the kinds of men that Tommy is writing about in The Blessed Rita, live in small, uh, failing, post-industrial towns in the Midlands or Yorkshire. Jonathan Coe's novel, last novel, Middle England, is fantastic. And, and, and it's standing off the, the varieties of Brexit experience we mm. say, in this country. But still, he's not, I mean, he, you know, he wouldn't he'd be the first to say he's not... Uh, he's, he's a middle-class writer yeah. and has been for a long it's time. A
0: it's, it's a different take. Has different empathy? There's no denying exactly.
1: it. He has empathy, and he's trying yeah. to represent views that are inimical to his own. You know, trying to understand why on earth someone would cleave to, you know, the Brexit flag with such vigour, mm. even mm. though it was going to obviously do them harm in their own lives if it came to pass. He's trying to understand that that uh, impulse, that mode But younger voices coming from more deprived communities coming from the estates, people who've grown up with, with nothing, subject to the, the whims of whichever administration has been in power uh, at, that, at the time that they are going through primary school, going through secondary school, you know, and what, what opportunities they've had and how they feel, therefore, about their sense of community and their sense of togetherness with, you know, the powers that be in London.
0: So Blessed Rita is very much a world without women. You have Rita the tart with a heart, an Inca vessel who likes foreigners, but the focus is the father-son relationship and all the men.
1: The, the saddest thing about that novel, uh, and it is a sad yeah. novel, um, yeah. is the complete failure by each of the key male mm. characters to exactly. understand women at all, which is why they are and they in in a largely exactly. ciphers or or types and, yeah. you know, yes, Inca Vessels, she actually offers salvation there near the end in a, in a you know, frankly, Christian manner, almost. there, there are yeah. the Christian architecture to the book as well, which we haven't talked about, uh, yeah. about possibility of salvation, really, and redemption. Mm-hmm. She offers him redemption, and he doesn't even notice, as it were, that that's what is being offered. You can't yeah. see it. So useless is he, or so that's unable true. to change, to go back to that whole argument of the book about people who are stuck, it's very sad. The Duchess' title is Santa Rita, you know, Saint Rita, yeah, exactly. changed slightly to the to the Blessed Rita. Not least because, of course, the Rita in question, as it is, is not the holiest of ladies. Um, I do think that you know redemption, um, the possibility of redemption, the possibility of salvation, is at the heart of this novel, and mm. its its groaning sadness is the failure of the key people to embrace that possibility. That that is the Christian architecture of it. I won't go further.
0: George Steiner, the Franco-American literary critic, essayist, philosopher, novelist and educator who wrote extensively about the relationship between language, literature and society and the impact of the Holocaust, famously said a study of translation is a study of language. Is all communication translation?
1: Um, As it happens, I've watched... (laughs) A George Steiner lecture from 1964. Yesterday, believe it or not, that makes me sound ah. absolutely pretentious. Pushkin House uh-huh. has started putting yep. up on online on its website, you know, for the lockdown, interesting, I think, lectures or talks that have taken place under their umbrella, you know, over the years, mm-hmm. uh, as as videos. And ah. I just stumbled across this, and it was about Tolstoy's characters, and it was oh, really fascinating. I think Steiner's amazing. I haven't read no, him for a long time. I do remember his sinuous style, uh, being bewitching. But this was about Tolstoy. It was about Tolstoy, as it were, not being in control of his characters, which is why this... Steyer was making the argument, I think it has has merit, that Tolstoy, who was, of course, a student of philosophy, uh, someone who believed in bettering society and discovering the rules by which society would be bettered, and his analysis changed over time. At times, he's more Christian at times he's more conservative, at times he's outright anarchist. But in the books themselves, and it's why people read War and Peace and sort of skip the philosophical bits, Steiner's argument is that the characters ran away from Tolstoy and he, he only has half a claim on creating them. They, they exist, fully rounded, uh, unpredictable. You, you come to believe that Tolstoy is not controlling how they react or what they say. Because if he were, in Steiner's argument, they would subscribe to one or other of Tolstoy's positions about the world. They would be more mouthpieces than they ever are. They escape from him in War and Peace. They, they, they lose Tolstoy. They lose their creator. And I thought this was a really wonderful argument, actually. I love that. <laughs> uh, uh, and why, it's why they, are, why they live and breathe is because they leave their creator behind.
0: George Steiner's great book, or rather best-known book, used on translation courses, is After Babel. Does it matter if the reader hears the original language lurking behind a translation?
1: Well, hidden okay. behind that question is is the question that every commissioning editor asks all the time when they're working on translations. Is that does this sound like it's been translated? Which is, is usually the death knell. For me, that is, you know, an instinctive thing that if if something reads uh, unnaturally in English then you're noticing the translation. Now unless there's a very good reason for that, which there sometimes is, a, a certain stiltedness or a certain artificiality right. is necessary to make the point, mm-hmm. fine, but in large measure I would say that that usually is a bit of a giveaway that you're seeing the workings, if you like, and yeah. translators, a bit like editors, you know, are at their most brilliant and their most successful when they're invisible, alas.
0: Julian Barnes famously said of the Booker Prize that it drives publishers mad with hope, booksellers mad with greed, judges mad with power, winners mad with pride, and losers, the unsuccessful shortlistees plus every other novelist in the country, mad with envy and disappointment. Novelists had better conclude that the only sensible attitude to the Booker is to treat it as posh bingo. What is your view of prizes, of which there are many?
1: Well... I think the the germane thing there is that Barnes wrote that having been shortlisted several times for the Booker and not winning. Now, you'd have to ask him yeah. the same question after he won it, which he, I think, went on to do following writing that. Would yeah. uh, he still have the same opinion? I agree with him, of course, uh, although I think he's overstating his position there for effect. It is a lottery. It is ungovernable. It is subjective, as must any judgment be that is in the hands of one or two or three or four or five judges. Mm. But what is undeniable is that over time that particular prize and several others have amassed a certain amount of trustability, trustworthiness Mm. on the part of readers everywhere so that they find that having the prize logo whether it's the Booker, or the Bailey Gifford, or the Orwell Prize, or Goldsmiths, Mm. depending on what you're after, Mm. if you're really interested in fiction that is pushing at the boundaries of what's possible, then you go to the Goldsmiths. You're looking for experimental fiction, experiments in fiction. That's that's where you're going to find the most interesting of of any given year. Um, So as a reader, it's a tremendous signal for you, and it speeds up the process of selection for you, which is why so many yeah. people, when they're looking for their next read in bookshops or online, they gravitate towards the ones with price symbols, logos on them. Uh, uh, that's its uh, principal uh, virtue, is that it, uh, it helps in, in, a, in a world in which there is arguably oversupply. There are too many books yeah. for any one reader ever to get their head around. But if you're, if, you're a, if you're a brave reader who wants to be challenged, wants to read outside of their normal sphere of operation, you are happy being challenged, then you look for prizes as a way of finding books that at least some people you respect and, uh, and, and, and would listen to have said is worthy of your attention. It short-circuits the otherwise incredibly knotted selection process mm. for a reader in a shop mm-hmm. faced with you know, two hundred beautifully designed uh, it's overwhelming,
0: products, yes. All
1: of which look it's like really they have equal claims on you. Yeah. All of which are festooned with amazing quotes from people you like. <laughs> How would you choose if you haven't gone in there for yeah. a certain thing, or well, maybe you go to the prizes. They are a selection mechanism for readers.
0: Three quarters of all internet traffic in two thousand seventeen was based around video. As business models change, will publishers do more interactive publishing? I'm not suggesting they become film studios, but how might video be factored in more when planning and developing new business models?
1: Um, I'm sure publishers will, will try to engage with particular communities. They, they've been doing it for a long time already yeah. online, whether that's, as it were, science fiction readers or gardening enthusiasts or medieval history buffs or whatever it is, and then present them with their wares appropriately. And then social media equally is, uh, you know, awash with book-derived content. With social media, I I have long been worried that what is happening is that a lot of people are getting so much book content. And I don't mean the actual books themselves, but chat about books, reviews of books, criticism, ranking, if you like, decision-making about what's trendy and what's not. Mm. All that's happening on Instagram and Twitter and the rest of it. It's very hard to track it, it's very hard to point to a a sale. I mean, as with advertising, you can't say she bought that book because she saw that ad in in The Underground Station or she saw that ad in The Times. It's sort of the same with social media.
0: True, reading a book requires calm contemplation. In a way, you could say the reader is having a conversation with the writer as they read their story, while social media is fragmented and jumps around and involves short-span concentration.
1: I don't know whether whether the younger generation is more capable than, than I am in this department. Mm. That's the other thing I just don't understand. I don't yeah. know enough. I read, I read countervailing theories about this all the time.
0: Who would be in your dream book club?
1: I think, uh, maybe in my recent reading here, I would like Coleridge to be there. His table talk is fantastic. He knew everything. He'd read everything. He's one of the last people alive, as it were, to be able to read almost everything that mattered, you know, back in the, the early 19th century. He's always interesting and... Always entertaining. I'd have Oscar Wilde because he's the funniest writer where I ever lived and one of the smartest, great company. I might have someone like Jermaine Greer to take all these kind of self satisfied men to task regularly and I mean, unpredictably. I'd have the older Greer because she can be quite sort of uh, crotchety these days, but I, I rather like that. Um, How many are we allowed?
0: No, About yeah. five. I Two more.
1: I'd like well, I'd like Michel de Montaigne, please. Whose essays oh, are the oh, yeah. essence of humanism for me, and uh, he was very, very always brilliant about friendship and companionship and how it works and why it matters. And maybe someone from outside of literature. I quite like Jacques Brel. Is that right?
0: Go for it, Jacques yeah, Brel. Yeah. I'll go for that. What kind of submissions would you like to see more of as a commissioning editor?
1: Would I see more of, what I'm. Re- really liking, I think it's happening already, but there certainly could be more, is more really interesting non-fiction proposals mm-hmm. in, in translation.
0: In narrative non-fiction?
1: Especially that, that's what I mean, you know, yeah. that not the sort of um, genre-specific books, but the, basically okay. what's happened I think is that, and this will sound awfully Anglo-centric, but the, the kind of revolution that took place in English language writing mm-hmm. in, in Britain and America and beyond over the course of, let's say, the 1970s, 1980s, into the 90s, the tail end of the the last century, where lots of really good non-fiction writers started to use explicitly the techniques of fiction in writing their non-fiction, whether that was in travel writing or in history or in political writing or in memoir. They really started to sort of be more playful and more bold and more adventurous in their writing. And I think that has, through translation out of English, Yeah. really filtered through now, and you're getting a lot of that kind of looseness, that hybridity, Mm. that sort of gauziness between fiction and nonfiction in, as I said earlier, especially in maybe the the literatures of Northern Europe, Holland, Germany, the Scandinavians, Poland, interestingly, slightly less so the The um, the southern countries, but then again, even that's changing too. And maybe Latin America is ahead of Spain on this, because an awful lot of really stuff like this comes out of South America right now. So yeah, I'd like more of that, please.
0: Thank you, Philip, for a fantastic interview. To find out more about Scribe Books UK, visit website scribepublications.co.uk. Their Twitter feed is at scribeukbooks. The Blessed Reader is published by Scribe and is available from online outlets such as Waterstones, Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Amazon. To buy The Blessed Reader from your local independent bookseller, you can find your nearest store by visiting booksellers.org.uk forward slash bookshop search. This podcast is brought to you by Booklast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Book Blast Diary or find us on Twitter at Book Blast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell and publisher Philip Gwynn-Jones for taking the time to do the interview. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of The Book Blast Podcast.